Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, listeners. Becky here. A quick content warning before we start. Today's episode will be about 70s pornography, and so will contain graphic discussions of sexual activity, as well as the exploitative aspects of the industry at that time. If that's not for you, we completely understand. Join us next episode where we head to 1985 and look at a Disney movie and a Sesame Street movie. We've always got something for everyone. And now, on to the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by podcasters, film critics, filmmakers, and authors, Will Sloan and Justin DeClue. Of course, sex on film would be one of the biggest draws of movies, and often early pornography featured similar ridiculous premises to modern porns. One of the earliest surviving unsimulated sex movies is the French A la Coup d'Or from 1908, where a couple walks in on a maid pleasuring herself with a vacuum attachment, and then the fun begins. So despite what some people think, the early 70s didn't invent pornography movies, but they did give it an air of artistry, some might say pretension, and did make an attempt to elevate it to mainstream acceptance, even gunning for Oscar noms in 1975. And it worked. Not the Oscar thing, but the mainstream acceptance thing. Uh, for a little bit. Now, we're going to look at two adult films with elevated premises, but enough nudity and unsimulated sexual acts to titillate any audience. But before we get into those, Will, why was there such a push to make pornography art house in the early 70s? And then why did that movement promptly die? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's important to remember that pornography in the early 70s was still a bit of a wild west it wasn't the industry that it would become as you mentioned obviously pornography has been around since the dawn of cinema but for decades it was silent eight millimeter movies that would be shown at like bachelor parties or fraternities and they were illegal but uh, when deep throat came out in 1972 if you watch it now you'll probably say this is a very bad movie but in 1972 <laughs> People were not used to seeing hardcore pornography in color with a plot, with competent photography, playing jokes, even jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mind if I smoke while you're eating is the classic line from that movie. Uh, uh, and it was playing in above ground movie theaters. And, you know, this was the culmination of this long series of court victories throughout the 50s and 60s that had chipped away at obscenity laws. And, you know, Again, pornography wasn't quite an industry, and at this point, pornography and underground films were not as far apart, at least in the popular consciousness, as they would become. There were a number of obscenity cases in the 60s fought over movies like Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures, Jean Genet's Enchant d'Amour. It's crazy to think that a movie like Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls, which mm. is a very difficult and uncompromising art movie, uh, used to attract audiences basically because people thought, well, maybe there's a little sex in here. And uh, 
in the popular consciousness, there were all these debates that were swirling over figures like, you know, everyone from Hugh Hefner to Lenny Bruce to Al Goldstein to Henry Miller about like, what is art? What is obscenity? How far is too far? What are contemporary community standards? And these were the sorts of debates that were at the forefront of people's minds and were certainly at the forefront of people in the porn industry, many of whom were like, I'm not going to say hippies, but like hippie adjacent uh, people who mm. people who like were doing this outlaw renegade thing. And they thought, well, maybe we're on the cusp of some kind of revolution. And uh, they kind of certain of them maybe thought of themselves in the same lineage as people like Henry Miller. And so then some of them might have started taking themselves very seriously. Well, I think about that in the mainstreaming, right? So like you have, for example, um, Johnny Carson outright saying, I went to see Deep Throat, right? Which gives it this air of legitimacy if like, you know, the late night grandfather says, I'm going to porn. Why aren't y'all taking your wives to go see this or your mistresses or whatever, right? For for a good time. But then there's also the side project of it. Like you think of Behind the Green Door and uh, Marilyn Chambers then being cast in Cronenberg's Rabbit because they were accusing Cronenberg of porn with shivers and he was like okay well then I'll cast an actual porn actress in my next film and we'll see what you have to say about that so it's really interesting to see this like the art house and like the grindhouse um, scene taking so much from the porn industry and then making it even more legitimate I think one of the interesting things about Porno Chic was the fact that all of these filmmakers like Damiano, even uh, Radley Metzger, what they wanted was to use pornography as a jumping off point. And there was the promise that porn would evolve beyond Deep Throat into more complex and engaging ways. But, you know, capitalism is right there to go, uh uh-uh, nope. This is something (laughs) that while there is a novelty factor that people are interested in seeing this, we can also do it for cheaper and we can do more of it. And that's the path that we're going to go down. We're not going to make it more expensive, hoping for a bigger audience, because we know we'll get an audience even if we give them like the cheapest possible thing. So like the films that we're talking about today what I find fascinating about them is that it's directors who think that they're right on the cusp to moving towards something else that they never got to. And Damiano probably thought that he would get a mainstream career out of this too. Like there were all of these, there was so much discourse around movies like Midnight Cowboy, you know, the first X-rated movie to win an Oscar and the last, it turns out. And, uh, you know, Last Tango in Paris came out the same year as Deep Throat. There was this thought that like, well, if, if Marlon Brando is doing a movie with somewhat explicit sexuality like like could these could these two industries merge in some way and and surely i gerard damiano who have made two movies on a varieties list of the top 10 grossing movies of the year surely i'm going to get my shot at hollywood soon no and the answer that was no <laughs> so then what happened in because 1975 is like really the cutoff for all of this and it seems like they were really amping up there was like a big push for oscar nominations for a number of films um and then it, <laughs> the hollywood just shut down and went that's just not no that's that's the bridge too far we will let you play uh, in the deuce but we will not do anything further than that yeah, I don't know about the Oscars. I mean, there was one movie that Damiano did kind of at the height of his pretensions called, uh, and I say that charitably because I actually like the movie, but it's called Memories Within Miss Aggie, which came out in, I guess, 74 or 75. And that was one where like, yeah, they said, we're doing an Oscar campaign for this movie. They published an ad in Variety that was like, you know, for your consideration, best actor, best actress <laughs> and everything. And uh, 
the, yeah, he, he did a whole campaign for that. In fact, that movie was reviewed in the New York Times badly, by the way, but it got quite a bit of mainstream press attention. But I don't I, I don't know if it was ever a particularly serious Oscar contender, but definitely. Yeah, I would say that after Memories within Miss Aggie, I think I think Damiano did good and interesting movies after that. But uh, certainly the air was coming out of the balloon after that. I did find both of these movies. The second one, not so much, but the first one, I needed to take breaks. Like it was a bit of an endurance test because we're not used to watching that consistent amount of like intense sexual activity for long periods of time. And it's like, and it's not that long. It's like 72 minutes, but it's still longer than your attention span normally is for something like that without more events happening like in an erotic thriller. And it's not just the sexual acts happening on screen like in... The Devil Miss Jones, it's the air of depression that yeah. surrounds all of it because it does, you know, kind of kick off with such a miserable feel. I mean, Damiano, when he was in his most pretentious kind of phase, he was just trying to rip off Bergman. I mean, a lot of these directors did. There was another director called Joe Sarno who was much more prolific and he did get into pornography, but he started in kind of like Swedish softcore style stuff. And they were all ripping off Bergman, which is very funny when you consider the acts of, you know, hardcore lovemaking on screen, which both of them mixed together don't always, you know, create something very engaging for someone that's not already ready for that kind of stuff. Like Deep Throat can be a success because it's kind of a joke. Like it's fun yeah. to go see with a date, I assume at the time and have a laugh. But then when you see something like Devil and Miss Jones, which is just a crushing depression, you can understand an audience going, what, is this what I want to see? Even though Devil Miss in Miss Jones was a huge hit. So I can understand them trying to follow that. Yeah, Devil and Miss Jones was a huge hit, I think because like after the first 10 minutes, it does deliver on the promise of having a lot of sex in it. Uh, if you check out Memories Within Miss Aggie, which again, I, I think is kind of an amazing movie, it has three sex scenes throughout the entire running time, which leaves a lot of time between the sex scenes. It's basically a, a psychological thriller. It's very indebted to like, Polanski's repulsion and so like if you if <laughs> you think wild. if you think Devil and Miss Jones is depressing you should check out Memories Within Miss Aggie <laughs> like I, I can imagine audiences watching that one in particular and being like okay like what are we doing here <laughs> or any film directed by Roberta Finley oh, like yeah. A Woman's Torment those are really <laughs> Polanski-esque and those are the rare ones where she was able to cut out the sex and you would still have a movie but like something like Devil and Miss Jones you could have the sex you got nothing you got like 20 minutes <laughs> you do have an excellent georgina spelvin uh, yeah, performance all right let's get into the, our first movie today so the more traditional of our two movies is of course the devil in miss jones and it's often cited alongside classics of the golden age of pornography like deep throat and behind the green door it was so successful that it was number 10 on the list of most successful movies financially at that time barely getting nudged out by paper moon and live and let die Barely. Like, I think it's like a few thousand dollars. Roger Ebert, very big fan. Although it contains multiple scenes of graphic sex, like porns do, the premise isn't one that you would immediately think of as a surefire mood maker, as we alluded to before. Okay, Will, do you want to go over the premise slash plot for us, for the audience? Well, it opens with this very striking 10-minute sequence uh, where... Miss Jones, the title character played by Georgina Spelvin, is alone in her apartment in New York. She is an aging spinster, I think, Georgina Spelvin, whose first hardcore film this is. Actually, that's not true. I think she'd done one before this, but uh, this was definitely her breakthrough movie. She was 36 when the film was made. Uh, 
she is alone in her apartment. She's very sad. She goes to the bathtub and and slits her wrist. And the graphically, we should add graphically, like. yeah, graphically, and it's very well photographed. <laughs> Uh, by, as Justin pointed out on Letterboxd, the photographer of Friday the 13th Part 4, uh, Yoa Fernandez. So she graphically kills herself, and it's a, it's a really mood-driven scene. Uh, very well shot. And then it cuts to, she's in, uh, I guess, the next world. She's in a purgatorial-like state. They shot it at this like mansion in upstate New York, and Damiano and his cinematographer do some kind of impressive things with the light coming through the windows. She's there and she's talking to this, I guess, middle manager in heaven, this uh, St. Peter-like figure who says, listen, you've lived a blameless life. You have no sins except for the sin of suicide, which instantly disqualifies you from heaven. And she says, God damn it. I wish I had uh, sinned more if I was going to go to hell. Like, can I can I have can I have 30 days to just devote myself to sin, specifically the sin of lust, because she's a virgin. And he says, you know what? We in fact, we do have time. So we're going to give you the 30 days. Now, just go into this next room here where we've got a man played by Harry Reams who will initiate you into uh, squalor. She goes, and then the rest of the movie basically charts her uh, transformation from an innocent to a pro. And you see her get increasingly hardened, increasingly sex-crazed as it goes along, up until, I hope people don't mind if I spoil the shocking twist, uh, up until she finds herself in hell, which, much like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit, she is in a room (laughs) with another man, the man played by Damiano himself in a Hitchcock-like cameo. She's just there, and she is she's a, a, a nymphomaniac at this point. She is desperate. She wants him to do something, anything, but he is impotent, and this is eternity for her. Uh, I, I think the moral of the film is kind of funny. It seems to be implying that, like, like Damiano, one of the things I find interesting about him is he's shockingly sex-negative for a pornographer. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. like, I think... He has two kinds of movies. He has goofy comedies and he has these brooding dramas and the brooding dramas like this one, like it's saying, yes, her her problem ultimately was that she was a spinster. She didn't have any sex. But the real problem is that once she started having sex, she took it too far and uh, too much sex will condemn you to uh, a, a life of hell. And knowing that Damiano was a Catholic, I think that ultimately Deep down inside, what he basically thinks is Miss Jones should have got married straight out of high school and should have had, you know, uh, one sex a week for the rest of her life. And uh, that that's the natural order of things. And and that that tension is something I find very interesting in Damiano. I mean, we've got the same thing going on with Ken Russell, mm-hmm. right? Like devout Catholic making the devils and a bunch of other stuff that's making all these bizarre religious allegories where you're like, what what are you thinking? What's going on? <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting about Georgina Spelvin and the fact that they've got her, like you mentioned, she's 36 years old. So even now she would be in the quote unquote MILF category. And at the time that would have been like unheard of, right? Like Linda Lovelace was what, like 19, 20? Like she was really young. Well, I know that Damiano kind of like fought for her she was I think the story was that she was originally working on like catering for the movie yeah. uh, amazing that the movie had catering but it did and he he, <laughs> he was uh, he thought she was beautiful he thought she had a dancer's body and he sold her to the investors who wanted somebody you know younger and blonder and I think that's part of the film's success is that it is a woman that I mean the concept of a 
pornography actor is different now than it was in mm-hmm. the 70s but even then georgina spelvin like looked like someone that you would see next door that classic archetype and it makes a big difference to see someone who starts as demure as she is in the film i mean pretty much at the lowest point you can get into what she ends up at the film's final moments and i think that that journey is something that obviously the audiences react to very well going back to her dancer's body so this she was not new to films like she's in freaking sweet charity and hello dolly as a dancer you know just two of the most complicated dance films of all that's time. right there wasn't she, she like shirley mclean's understudy or something like that yeah that's correct yeah no she's ridiculous so she danced and then she was living in new york at the time actually with uh, her partner judith hamilton who's one of the women she's in the threesome with but uh, she started doing these movies because she wanted to make more money to do anti-war films because she felt that's really where she could be of use and then she just sort of stumbled into this second career post dancer career as a, as a pornography actress and one of the one of the biggest like this role would carry through with her um there are hold on a second let me check this there are five direct sequels a remake and a sequel of the remake which is bananas and i think she's like in three or four of them in cameo roles so obviously the legacy lives on but the thing about the sequels is that i mean i haven't seen them all i haven't do, done my due diligence as a devil <laughs> Miss, with miss jones Justin, i'm disappointed in you <laughs> but even the second one it's a joke like it's a satire off of the first one and i have a feeling looking at the directors they probably do get a little bit dark considering they're directed by gregory dark a very famed kind of new wave porn director but none of them i would assume have the feel of this first one because you can't recreate it in good conscience past this kind of period when porn chic seems so promising uh yeah and i will say that i have seen the devil and miss jones too uh mm. you know because because i i am a scholar of the cinema and uh <laughs> and uh it, it is basically a comedy i found it disappointing to be honest i wanted more of the magic mm. of the first one it's it's basically sort of like a vignette movie georgina spelvin appears in the opening scene and i think by this point she was kind of in her late 40s so they were phasing her out basically she has like a scene at the beginning and then like whoever's in hell like you know whoever the devil is in the movie it's been a while since i've seen it but he's like okay we're gonna send your soul to inhabit the bodies of these various women on earth as they as they have sex <laughs> and so suddenly uh we've got we've got various new and younger models of miss jones <laughs> now i wonder if part of the appeal of this movie at the time like this is the same year as holy mountain and like a number of other like occult ethereal esoteric sort of films and this has a very occulty sort of vibe to it like um you know she has a teacher Of course, played by Harry Reams, who's like instructing her how to do everything. And that's like got a real not quite Charles Manson-y, but close, more like a Dave Berg from Children of God sort of vibe, Um, like it's which is grotesque, I know. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's I wonder if that's one of the reasons it hit in the 70s so hard is because it has that that esoteric sort of thing going on. Like Will said, the kind of conflict I feel between the catholic director telling the story and probably the very you know catholic audience watching it this forbidden fruit is something that is so enticing to everyone and you know we're getting into the 70s uh the manson murders they've killed you know the hippie movement this is the next step that we're going down towards and this kind of occult vibe also is present in Damiano's uh, not very good Legacy of Satan, which came out just the uh, year after this, which is his only straight movie, I believe. Will. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and it is a disappointment. 
I think, you know, Justin is right when he says that Deep Throat was a sort of ideal first porn movie for a lot of people because it is funny because, you know, it's an easy entrance way. But yeah, I can I can see why this one might have worked when you consider that, uh, you know, to do some pop psychology here, it was coming uh, at the tail end of a long period of repression. And it's a movie that treats sex as a taboo. It It treats... Uh, libertine sexuality as something potentially dangerous so you know and, and something to something to be taken seriously so in that in that frame of mind i can understand why the audience w- would have gravitated towards something like this where was harry reams at his point in this career like um because he of course is up there with like john holmes as one of the biggest porn stars of the 70s well he kind of uh I wouldn't say lucked into, but he fell into his career as this like porn icon because of Deep Throat. So he certainly would have been recognizable uh, that, you know, being recognizable and famous in this context uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee a great career outside of this context. I know that probably there, more no- notorious <laughs> is the word we're looking for, right? <laughs> I know there was a period in the mid to late 70s when he actually tried to have a mainstream career and supposedly he was up for a role as like the gym teacher in Greece, like the director wanted Hmm. him for that, but the studio nixed it, which I think was very difficult for him. He was also someone who was central to one of the big uh, obscenity trials that Deep Throat faced. He was the one who like, because I think Linda Lovelace and Damiano had immunity because they, they uh, gave evidence uh, which is a, a, an awfully unpleasant thing to think about, that he was the one who ended up having to take the rap for it. So mm. he was on trial for a couple of years and like, uh, you saw like you saw Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson like doing a press conference with him saying that like if if he gets prosecuted for acting in this movie then you know that would that would be terrible so he had like throughout the 70s uh, that was a little bit after the devil and miss jones but throughout the 70s he was a very infamous figure like Alan Dershowitz represented him at one of his trials uh, oh but yeah he he certainly would have been known but um not uh not a mainstream sort of celebrity Okay. I mean, it is encouraging. Like, I haven't actually ever seen Deep Throat, mostly because of the comments Linda Lovelace has mm-hmm. made about it in subsequent years where I am not comfortable watching that film. Yeah. Um, however, that having been said, Georgina Spelvin has nothing but good things to say about this set, about its safety, about um, how comfortable she felt doing it. And that is really a departure from a lot of these films that you're hearing about. Yeah. I mean, regarding Deep Throat, I know that Linda Lovelace... Uh, uh, you know, I've read Ordeal, like she was in this horrifically abusive relationship with her husband slash pimp Chuck Trainer, who she says essentially forced her into a career in the sex industry. I think if memory serves in that book, she was fairly positive overall towards both Damiano and Harry Reams. I think she spoke of them Correct. very fairly fondly. But I mean, it's hard to deny that Deep Throat is a severely problematic artifacts (laughs) and like you know the case could be made that watching it is the moral equivalent of watching something like revenge porn or you know something where the watching of it further victimizes the person i mean that's always the the issue when you go into these things is how how am I as the audience member supposed to watch it? And I have the same issue when I'm watching movies where like it's clear that the stunt people were not treated well or there's animals that are in danger, that kind of thing. So there's always that sort of 
line as well for the voyeuristic aspect, right? Of when, when, what am I actually comfortable being a party to and and um, a part of? And it's a tricky thing, I think, with pornography in general because, you know, there are a lot of people who have been in it. You know, you can't you can't say who's having a positive experience. You can't say for sure who's there because they needed money or they or they were uh, well, everybody's there well, because they yeah, needed sorry. money. <laughs> or, Joan Crawford was allegedly there because she needed money. Yeah, yes. yeah, right. Um, I don't know. It, it's a it's a very tricky uh, moral line for sure, and I uh, I don't have the answer for how to navigate it. <laughs> no, of course not. I think, however, that having been said, if you're dipping your toe into it, I feel like the two movies we're talking about today are mm-hmm. two of the more safe aspects, where it sounds like everybody was on board and it was a very collaborative experience, and and we're in a good place. I do have a question for you, though, Will. Is this the only pornographic film to have its own theme song? Oh, um. That's a good question. I I don't think it is. I wish I could have a. I wish I could have another example for you, just off the top of Wait, my head. Weren't you looking, Will? I remember you're like, ah, oh, the Deep Throat Two soundtrack on vinyl. Oh, maybe I'll pick that. <laughs> well, up. yeah. So, uh, deep Throat has a great theme song. Uh, deep Throat, deeper than deep your throat. <laughs> I, oh I could God. still sing it for you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Apparently that's glorious. Well, this one I know because it was sung by Linda November, who has performed 26,000 jingles. There's a great clip of her on the Today Show just with um, Regis Philbin and where he's just like, do the Diet Coke. And he's like fanboying out as she does these little clips of jingles on her piano. It's ridiculous. Well, I just want to brag that I spent years trying to find the Devil and Miss Jones soundtrack on vinyl. And I finally did one day. And, you know, really? I could have ordered it on eBay, but it's just one of those things where it's like i want to find it in a store and i did eventually and were you like huh this sounds like in your more carne tracks <laughs> almost exactly <laughs> yeah they they do steal they do steal a, a track from once upon a time in the west and uh, when you listen to damiano's commentary on the dvd he says at one point he says oh it sounds like once upon a time in the west and you're like damiano come on man <laughs> who are you trying to fool All right. On that note, let's go into our second film. So when we come back, there's a whole lot of music going on in our next movie. Shockingly, not a lot of dialogue. That's coming up after the break. Wakefield Pool's Bible is exactly as sacrilegious as it sounds, even if it's not a hardcore pornographic film. It does contain nudity and unsimulated sexual acts, but it's really more of a dance piece with softcore sex. Now, I was surprised not only how much I liked it, but how much I was moved emotionally by it. Not exactly what I was expecting of this deeply bizarre film. However, I have been informed that not only is this not the best example of Wakefield Pool's work, it's also not typical at all. Uh, We'll be talking about mostly Bible as it was released in 1973, but what would be some other examples of a Wakefield Pool picture, Will, just before Justin goes into the plot line here? Well, he made one of the seminal porn films of all time, uh, 1971's Boy in the sand which came out a couple months before deep throat and could be argued it could be argued that it was the the true beginning of porno chic because wakefield pool was a, a new york personality he was a, a dancer first with the ballet russe then he uh, became a very successful broadway choreographer working on stephen sondheim and noel coward plays and uh, in 1971 he went to see a gay porn film called highway hustler 
uh, it's a very well-oiled origin story that he has. He saw this film and he said, this is degrading. This is ugly. Why doesn't somebody make a good gay porn film? One with positive feeling, one, one that is well photographed and uh, just has a good vibe and that you wouldn't feel ashamed of going to see. And that summer in Fire Island, he did just that. And, you know, he he made this movie uh, he, because he was so well connected. You know, the the list of celebrities who were at the premiere included like Rudolf Nureyev and Liza Minnelli and people like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, from from that point on, that movie sort of set the template for the sorts of things he would do, which were these very sensual uh, some of the later ones he did are a little more surrealistic and dreamlike, but just very, uh, yeah, very, very, very sensual and very just interested in like the human body and uh, moving at a different sort of pace from a lot of pornography. That's definitely my sensation of this. And I did watch a little bit of Boys in the Sand. I didn't make my I didn't make it the whole way through. But uh, yeah, that was the impression I got there as well. We'll talk about that a bit more in a bit. Uh, but before we do, Justin, do you want to walk us through a bit of the plot of Bible exclamation point. Well, this is an easy one because the film presents three biblical stories, the classics, Adam and Eve, uh, Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba, but it does them without any dialogue, all musical, all essentially kind of like moving like a dance. Uh, very slow moving. Some critics of the film would say uh, set mostly in very picturesque locations or very, you know, seeing an abstract play location, a very surreal kind of feel to all of it. And there's also at the end a little bit, um, you know, uh, hint towards, oh, what's coming up next in the Bible? But I don't want to spoil it. You know, it's creating the expanded Bible universe. <laughs> Someone could still make a sequel. Who knows? <laughs> just keep keep it moving but i mean now this does not feel risque at all watching at this all. film no it's in and there was moments of it i was genuinely moved like the samson delilah bit um and just the like you can feel the anger the emotionality in it is so strong it's uh it's real good uh alicia fletcher i know you are listening right now if you have not seen this and i know how much you love the the tales of beatrix potter ballet this should be on your list as well <laughs> It's kind of alongside that. I think that one of the issues with the film, though, is that for a lot of people, it's neither fish nor fowl. Yeah. Like, it's not hardcore enough for people that are like, oh, the star of Devil Wisman's Jones is in this. And it's also not, you know, dancey or I guess abstract enough for people who want that kind of experimental art film hit. For 10 minutes, you watch a naked man climb through cave holes. <laughs> like, it doesn't and get much more experimental That's how it starts, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's also, speaking of it not being fish nor fowl, it's also basically a bisexual movie, which I think mm. was critical to it not finding success. And this, again, speaks to the Wild West atmosphere that was in pornography at the time, where they, they hadn't quite figured out the rules yet. In 1975, Gerard Damiano made a movie called uh, Story of Joanna, which is one of his better films. And uh, it has a scene towards the end of it that is a, a gay scene. Uh, Zebedee Colts gives Jamie Gillis a blowjob. And I know that Damiano, in fact, I think in his commentary for Devil and Miss Jones, he says something like, well, you know, we've done so many girl-girl scenes. I thought, why not put in a boy-boy scene for the ladies? <laughs> Which, hmm. you know, seems seems touchingly naive in retrospect. Because <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great, you know, <laughs> when, when, <laughs> blue sky thinking. I mean, when it came out, 
theater owners just from coast to coast just cut that scene out you know there was there was no interest in that but uh, bible um bible is an example of like uh that that kind of thinking it's like well maybe we can make a movie that that appeals to everyone you know the rules hadn't been written yet i mean my favorite part of this is uh gloria grant who plays delilah i mean i love that whole segment but like uh he found her in a steak and brew that he frequented and he loved the graceful way she moved between the tables which i'm sure a steak and brew is a rowdy joint uh so i'm sure she moved through it but the woman has like this grace jones statuesqueness to her she's absolutely gorgeous and then she went on to be like an enormous uh, makeup artist like she works on a ton of Hollywood films which is it's so neat to see how different people's careers do different things and I'm glad that didn't stymie her in any way of wanting to be behind the camera it makes me wonder like is there a more successful version of this film if it all kind of look like the Samson and Delilah segment, mm. which is the most art directed one. Or was it that the beginning of the film just soured people when you see uh, Adam just crawling through cave holes for <laughs> 15 minutes sent to very, um, you know, low key classical music? Well, how many people walked out is my question. Like they talked uh, about how one of the, big... of the audience, I assume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. Because the disappointment also was that everyone was expecting to come see Georgina Spelvin, who plays Bathsheba in this one. Um, do the exact same thing she did in Devil and Miss Jones. And because of their release schedule, this was probably playing in theaters at the same time. So you'd leave one and go into the next one, right? So, well, I mean, if you have that kind of endurance, I'd be very impressed. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you're the the straight male audience who saw (laughs) Devil and Miss Jones, then you show up and you get 10 minutes of just the camera lovingly lingering over a muscly man's body. You know, you're you're probably not going to enjoy it that much. (laughs) And I wonder how many people were like, oh, Wakefield pools the Bible. Hmm, what has he done before? <laughs> okay, maybe this movie's not for me then. What's a fire island? Sounds warm and comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Let's go there. <laughs> I mean, the film did open at the Lincoln Art Theater, which seems to be the place for it to go because it is positioned as more of an art film than it is we're going to satisfy, you know, the raincoat crowd at the pornographic theaters. There was another uh, gay film around this time uh, that I highly recommend people check out called Sex Tool by Fred Halstead, who was sort of the Mm. evil West Coast version of uh, Wakefield Pool, (laughs) but also also a great filmmaker. And, you know, it was this kind of kind of like Wakefield Pool's Bijou. It's this surreal dreamscape encompassing like. Uh, an all night uh, disappearance into this, you know, strange uh, gay uh, uh, dreamscape, uh, repeating my words there. Um, and, and, you know, that was a movie that has some very extreme uh, sex acts in it, you know, a lot of very extreme BDSM involving like piercing and stuff. And uh, mm. Fred Halstead apparently thought that this movie would be his crossover to the, the mainstream because it had all of these art film elements and like he shot it on 35 millimeter which was his biggest problem because all the gay theaters only had 16 millimeter (laughs) (laughs) well that's not gonna Uh, work but he thought i can get this shown in art houses and then he showed it to the art houses and they're like you're you're insane there's a scene in this movie where somebody shoves a banana up someone's backside uh we can't we can't show this in our art house Uh, (laughs) and and yeah like I, i guess i bring this up only just because like 
I just love that there was this era when this was possible, when movies like this could be made. And it was only two, it was only like two years, but, but it happened. This, if anything was going to cross over, this would be the one, but like there also was just such a, because of the way it's marketing and marketed, and there is such a fiasco about the way this was marketed, where they were like, it's not quite a porn, but it is, but it's not. And I think it just straddles the line too much. Had it gone further in one direction or another, I think it may have been more successful. Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned at the beginning, this is essentially softcore. Like there are some scenes of uh, fellatio that are shown off screen and everyone is naked the entire time. But beyond that, like there's nothing to be offended by (laughs) other than the sight of naked bodies. If you're like, no. So it makes me wonder like, yeah, what could he have done that would have allowed it to, for people to be more accepting to it? Because by the time this came out, I mean, it was the same year of the devil and Miss Jones, but people were already, I feel getting tired of this trend. I'm like, all right, you got to give me something else other than this. And I, you know, Wakefield pool, he tried to almost play it too safe. I feel like if he had gone in one either direction, he could have probably found a bigger audience. And as Will was saying, obviously shock wasn't the direction to go because everyone went and looked and went, yeah, no, that's a little too much for us. Thanks very much. I I mean, the shock was doing it as, you know, the Bible, which was a kind of go-to thing for uh, porno porno auteurs because the Mitchell brothers who made Behind the Green Door also did Sodom and Gomorrah the last seven days or tried to, which was supposed to be like their big epic. And that also sunk them. So it's like, oh, Bible, it seems like the most sacrilegious thing that you can go to, but it actually doesn't bring people into the theater. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, I'm sure that you know, one of the one of the appeals of doing a biblical porn movie is supposed to be the taboo element. You know, opposition mm-hmm. to pornography has traditionally been led by religious moralists. But uh, the Bible is a kind of sexy book at times. Uh, there, there's a lot of sex in it. Uh, there's a real attraction repulsion relationship with sex in there. And so you'd think you'd think that it could potentially be fertile ground for uh, an erotic movie. And yet, I don't know. It just uh, it just never seemed to work, has it? Well, I think part of the issue, too, that this would be in the 70s with a lot of, as you mentioned, straight males going to see this is that the point of view is all from the women. Mm. And we're supposed to be empathizing with what these women are doing. And like the only line of dialogue in the film is said by Eve. Right. So you have and especially in the um, Bathsheba David scene, um, I love that scene so much because it reminds me, I'm sure both of you have seen it. They released a bunch of these in the 90s, these burlesque films, which were classic from the 50s, which featured like um, Betty Page and Lily St. Cyr just doing like their performances. And this felt like I was watching a clip of that. It's very playful. It's very fun. But I think another filmmaker would have done it from David's point of view, spying on her, whereas this is about Bathsheba being being like, fuck my husband. Oh, wait, this guy's watching me. Am I scared? No, actually, I'm kind of into this. Now we're going to play. Like, it's a much more playful interpretation of it. And it very much puts the power in her hands once she figures out what's going on. And I'm wondering if people couldn't connect with that. When you talk about the previous film, like that film is about degradation. And that Mm -hmm. may be one of the reasons of its success. And the attraction to seeing Bible stories as, you know, hardcore pornography for a lot of people, I assume is, all right, now I'm going to see this, you know, like kind of gross, not the way that I pictured it in my mind, even though, you know, there is a lot of sex in this book. But 
the way that Wakefield Pool took it is more, you know, arty, kind of like dancing, very gentle. And I can understand as well as people being like, no, but even if you didn't give me hardcore pornography, I wanted to feel kind of, you know, gross with this material. And he is not interested in that at all because that's not the perspective that he's taking it from. You know, when Deep Throat was on trial for its various obscenity bus uh, and people were trying to make the case for it as having socially redeeming value, one of the things that people would say um, which is is a little hard to take seriously, but they would say it is that like it's a woman's self actualization story. It's about like, huh. it's like it's about a woman taking control of her own sexuality, and it also shows that like a man's pleasure is not is not the only thing. Like you know, remember remember this is a, a society where uh, a lot of men didn't even know what the clitoris was until like two <laughs> years ago, and now yeah, deep throat is educational. It'll be shown in classes <laughs> now. Here's a whole movie about the clitoris. I mean, uh, <laughs> but it's in her throat so yeah. basically it's you know the woman in the yeah so so i mean it, it is uh it is a little ridiculous i mean bible is definitely a different a different kind of female empowerment movie than that uh and probably a better one i would say but you know i i, I like the theory i want to believe the theory that uh straight male audiences weren't uh, willing to accept a movie from that woman's point of view i want to believe that's true there's part of me that ultimately thinks that like the big deal breaker was too much time was spent lingering over the male form for I can see for that right them. off the top too. Uh, right yep. right off the top and i think ultimately you know ultimately the male audience would have been able to accept a lot as long as it was uh entirely lingering over the woman's form <laughs> you know i can yeah. see that that makes sense. Well, let me ask you a quick question about the the obscenity trial. So what changed and what stayed the same? Like what then did what going forward changed in the cinema because of that obscenity trial? Uh, let me see. Well, there were a lot of different trials and the Supreme Court eventually made a decision. I don't have the exact decision in front of me here, but there was eventually a Supreme Court decision where. So the one that opened it up was the Supreme Court said uh, something had to be entirely without socially redeeming merit. And people okay. said entirely without socially redeeming merit. So let's say we have 90 minutes of hardcore sex and one scene where somebody recites dialogue from The Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> uh, well, then well then that's great. Uh, we, can, we can do that. And so when people were making the case for Deep Throat as having socially redeeming merit, they would say, well, it's got a story. It's got jokes. It's uh, it tells men where the clitoris is. Isn't that isn't that great? Um, but but then eventually there was a Supreme Court decision. I don't think it was for Deep Throat, but it was for something where they said it has to be uh, judged on contemporary community standards, you know, the standards of the community. So what happened was Deep Throat would be banned in some places. I think it is still technically banned in Manhattan, which is obviously <laughs> something that is not enforced. But I obviously. think it's on the books that it's banned in Manhattan. You know, there are a lot of states where it was banned and a lot of states where it wasn't banned. And that was basically how pornography operated until another court decision in the mid to late 80s. Also, the, the there was a legal gray area up to up to the mid to late 80s where in many places it was legal to exhibit but it was not legal to make so in los angeles in new york where the main hubs of production were people were constantly afraid that the police were going to raid their sets 
Um, so hmm. that was, th- there was a lot of legal gray area. And it should be pointed out if we're talking about legal gray area that a lot of these films were made or distributed by organized crime. Oh, yes. Which was another reason <laughs> yeah. that, you know, uh, there was a lot of difficulties for not only the exhibition of it, but the people making it as well. Like Gerard Dermiano, you know, a Devil Miss Jones, it made... $15 million, according to some reports. Maybe it even made more than that. And he saw nothing from it. Uh. Damiano had a period in the 70s where he would constantly make a movie that would do good business and he would be in a partnership with, you know, some legitimate businessman or other. And then the legitimate businessman would say, well, you can have the money or you can have your legs. And he would say, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take my legs. And there got there got to be a point sort of in the late 70s, early 80s, where he said, okay, that's enough partnerships. I work on commission now. Give me money up front and I'll make a movie for you. When we're talking about the general kind of shape of pornography, it's also what ended these kind of films is video. Mm -hmm. You know, you can Mm -hmm. do it cheap. Anyone can hold the camera. What difference does it make whoever's putting up the money? Who's directing it? Like, does it make it better? I mean, yes, obviously, but to them it doesn't. Like, it's just, can you make something it in their eyes has a beautiful woman on the cover put it out people will buy it that's all that matters and certainly shooting on video uh even if there were higher end video productions it just didn't look as good as film did and you can see that if you've ever explored gerard damiano's later films the stuff from the late 80s or the early 90s it's it's i mean i'm not going panning for gold in in that mess of movies it's it's just what from what i've seen it's not good what doesn't make like what lessons did he not learn is my question, because like I'm sure he was able to see kind of what people were able to react to in his films and what they especially when they started getting reviewed by people like Ebert. So who know who understand film structure and what people are engaged well, with? I think that any kind of porn auteur or director eventually get beaten down by yeah. just making these films that if you put your heart and soul in a picture that you make in the early 70s, it's successful, but you see no financial or kind of job prospects from it, but you're continuing to make porn films, why would you make any effort? Mm. Like, you could just give them the base thing and put it out there under the assumption that you will get the exact same attention or, you know, forward momentum that you got before, which is absolutely none. Or you fall into the lifestyle thing, which is what happened to the Mitchell brothers, who then ended up, one of them murdered the other one uh, in allegedly trying to help him. So, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting because, like, as you talk about, there's organized crime involved. There's uh, issues of consent. There's there's so much that sort of muddies and mires this. And yet it is still the most profitable industry <laughs> in, in film. Right. Like, that's how this works. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's like it's like veal. You know, it, it, it tastes great. <laughs> and at a certain point, you got to. <laughs> <laughs> you say, Wait, what is veal <laughs> let me check it out oh no <laughs> all right i think that is the perfect place to leave it i'm sure someone is going to clip that last line out for you uh will and that's going to be used against you in some sort of fashion um won't be the first time i'm sure all right and i want to thank once again <laughs> justin de for coming to join us thank you so much oh it's my pleasure will sloan thank you very much for bringing your area of expertise so out of curiosity like, do you have like an academic background in this? Oh, no, I'm just uh, I, I was just raised Catholic. What can I say? <laughs> I got it. All right. And you can join us in two weeks as we are heading once again into 1985. And don't worry, we've got Disney and Sesame Street coming up. That's coming up in two weeks. <laughs> From the devil and Miss Jones to Big Bird. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. 
If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Justin DeClue and Will Sloan as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.